Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, U.S.-China relations. Our guest is Jody Evans. She is co-founder of Code Pink, which works to stop U.S. military interventions overseas and promotes diplomatic solutions and divestiture from war. She served in the administration of Governor Jerry Brown and ran his presidential campaigns. She has published two books, Stop the Next War Now and Twilight of Empire, and produced several documentaries films including the Oscar and Emmy nominated The Most Dangerous Man in America and The Square and Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything. Jody Evans, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks, David. So great to be in conversation with you as we end this crazy 2020 and begin again in 2021. Yes, indeed. Jody, you've now started something called China is Not Our Enemy. What is that and why did you start it up? So about a year ago, uh, excuse me, now two years ago, um, I moved part-time to China with my husband. You know, watched people really excited about the stories I would bring back and what I was learning. And then all of a sudden I watched it turn and China became the enemy. And how could I say nice things about it? And I, I got very concerned that nothing had happened and started to watch that the media was driving all this hate towards China. And then um, COVID happened and it became the Chinese, you know, it was China and China was bad and that, and that just catapulted hate towards China. Um, and then, it, you know, the wave just went way up. And I was experiencing it both as an American but also someone who was living part-time in China. And then I realized, you know, here, here I am, an anti-war activist, and here we go again. It felt so much like um, when we started engaging to stop the Iraq War and launched Code Pink. Uh, Code Pink was called because Bush was frightening the American people into war with his color-coded alerts, orange, red, and yellow, and we called Code Pink for peace. And it was the same, lies, hate, um, drama, you know, didn't relate to reality on the ground. So I was like, wait a sec, this is a launch to another war, but this is, you know, war is bad, but this is a war that is, we're talking about nuclear power. In the case of China, there actually are weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, nuclear war means the end of the world. I mean, you know, six nuclear bombs drop, and we have a nuclear winner and nothing grows. So it, the, it just tightened for me. Like, wh- why is no one paying attention? This is just happening. People are swallowing hook, line, and sinker, all these lies that are coming out. And so I could think I decided to launch China is Not Our Enemy uh, just to work on changing the narrative of uh, um, the aggression towards China that I was watching. And, and what, what I was seeing is that the State Department and the CIA and the whole plan of, like, the story launching that had become so familiar to me through the Iraq War, um, they were targeting values of progressives and liberals. And it was very clear. And so I was like, oh, no, you know, my friends are going to be used by these stories and caught up in their narrative that drives us to war. It's... It seems like, well, 
what, you know, what, not to be on the defensive, because, you know, I know what that's like, the he said, she said just doesn't work, and we're already so lost in a, in a world of what's true and not true. It was like, how do you create a, instead of a defensive position, an offensive position to this? And that um, became what we would do out of Code Pink, which was to point out the lies and, and, and um, more the hate. Why are you hating on China when right now, given the issues that we have, um, a pandemic that we'll, you know, won't be the last, and the climate change, we need to be in cooperation with China, not in hate or driving a war towards China. So that's irresponsible what you're doing. And then the other is, you know, hate towards China, it, the effects are happening at home. And since this all started happening, racist attacks on Asian people have risen, risen 800%. And, and so the war is actually happening at home on people that are U.S. citizens. And yesterday, in the debates on the floor, Senator Cornyn used hate towards China as an excuse to fund the NDAA, when really the hate towards China is the State Department um, militaries, uh, they're driving that hate, so we'll spend more money on war. When, as, you know, what, what, what Bernie was doing last week with the um, NDAA is holding it hostage to getting $2,000 for people. But um, this China story is just to, yet again, take more money out of our pockets and make the rich richer who are invested in weapons and more. Yeah, it seems to me, Jody Evans, that uh, back in early 2001, before 9-11, uh, the media was pushing China as the big enemy, uh, and the, the Middle Eastern terrorism sort of took over, and as that's faded a little bit, uh, you look at all these, you know, op-ed writers from all these weapons-funded think tanks pushing China as the big enemy. I mean, how much of it is just accident uh, and the occurrence of coronavirus, and how much of it is is profit interests and agenda? I mean, who's who's driving this? Well, obviously the Pentagon. If you're inside of it, it's obviously the Pentagon and the State Department. But it, again, as you said, it just it does it started a long time ago, and you know what's interesting about doing this work is just really how uninformed we are about China history and our own militaristic history. Um, you know this this all started right after World War Two, and the Korea War was about China, and you know we don't. The, People in the United States don't know anything about the war on Korea and about the U.S. The, the violent, horrible, like just gut-riching. Um, it, it reminds me of the genocide of the indigenous people of the U.S. When you read how, you know, United States officials, including presidents, would talk about extinguishing a whole population. The same thing happened in Korea, like, literally went in and just mass-killed people for no reason, except that they wanted equality for all. I mean, just mass-killed because the U.S. wanted the position so that it would be at the doorstep of China. Um, 
you know, we we don't know um, our history in relation to China and that this drive to hold anyone back that could become um, in any way uh, even competitor um, with the U.S. is just not allowed. And I think, you know, it's it's always been there if you look back in history, um, this attention on China and holding it back. But now, um, you know, even Hillary Clinton said, you know, we just the fact that China is becoming prosperous is makes them our enemy. I mean, just because a country becomes prosperous, they're our enemy. <laughs> I mean, that's just disgusting. We I don't we want the whole world to be prosperous. Um, and you know, China was recently able to pull nine hundred million people out of poverty, out of extreme poverty. Don't we want to be friends? Don't we want to cooperate? Don't we want to learn how that happened? I I mean, I live in a city of fifteen thousand homeless people. I li- you know I'm I'm surrounded. Um, by 10 cities. I want to learn how that happened. Um, Or, you know, my husband still lives in China. It's almost been a year since I've been able to see him. But he sends me daily pictures of him with his staff, you know, 40 people in a room hugging each other. Um, They just went to Beijing and saw um, the first ever um, display, a, a museum did a show about China in the Korean War, um, it also was a, a horrible, painful loss in China. It's something that no one in China wanted to engage with, but that they knew that if they let go of um, a hold in Korea, that the U.S. would be at their border. Um, and so we're pulled into it, and um, Mao's son was killed um, in, in their defense of, um, as they say, their defense of Korea. Right. So we're, you know, we're woefully lacking in information and therefore easily um, manipulated. And Jody, you almost went to China and didn't because of coronavirus uh, and later discovered that it uh, was worse in the United States, right? <laughs> right. I was um, at Newark Airport on January 30th, and um, they were just locking down China. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to be quarantined into China. And now, you know, I'm quarantined in the U.S. for almost a year. And my husband is uh, walking around freely. You know, it. China did what they needed to do to stop it. And I, many times my husband would be on the phone, he's like, I don't know what America thinks. Yes, you can lock it down, but it doesn't stop it. This goes on and on and on. It's, you know, you could see the, um, you know, the fertility of the locking down because it wasn't a lockdown in the way China did it so that you could actually stop the virus spreading. Yeah. You know, I... I and now s- even um, my friends um, just went back to China um, and, you know, it's... The other thing I think that's really interesting that I've learned in the process of the coronavirus in China is I'd already witnessed it living there, but watching it around um, the virus, so, you know, they have to be super careful. So when you come in, it's a 14-day 
quarantine. But the neighborhood that you live in decides how that quarantine looks. In the same way, as as soon as shutdown happened, your neighborhood decided how that happened. So in China, there's actually more what I call democracy because I think citizen engagement is democracy um, than there is in the U.S. Like how things happen is local. And so the people that you live around is how you decide some things to happen. So my husband lives both in Shanghai and in Sanya, which is a city in an island. He's Jamaican, so it's the same latitude as Jamaica, so he gets his Jamaica fix down there. Um, but in one neighborhood, in, in his neighborhood in Shanghai, it was much more open. You could actually go out and get things, or it was a little freer. And he could um, he left every day and took walks in the park. But in Sanya, you were you couldn't leave um, your apartment, and the young people in the neighborhood were the ones assigned to do the grocery shopping for everyone. And so it was how it happened is a is an agreement around the community you live in. And the same now as when people come back, the neighborhoods decide. And so um, Marco and Tings live in a in a, a kind of working class neighborhood, and they're super careful. And they said, no, you know, in some of the neighborhoods, like you can come back and one week of quarantine and then one week in quarantine in your apartment. But they said, no, you can't because we're too worried. Rightly so. The only COVID that comes into China is from people who come from the outside. So people actually get to take care of themselves and make the decisions that make them feel safe, which is a fantastic way to live on the planet, right? Because you are then constantly in the relationship of what is it? Not like war is not what makes you feel safe. It's how what's happening in my neighborhood. And I could think that's one of, you know, our work is, like, to notice that we live in a war economy. I mean, this all came out of we're trying to stop war, and I realized, oh, we're not going to stop war till we end the war economy because war is just serving the war economy, the um, oppressive, destructive, violent economy um, that is killing us, our communities, and the planet. And then there's a peace economy, and that's the giving, sharing, caring thriving, relational, resilient economy without which none of us would be alive. And <clears throat> I launched this five years ago, but when I was in China, I actually got to witness it everywhere where care of each other is one of the foundational things because it's constant. You are constantly having to make decisions about how do we care for each other because that is what safety and security looks like. Jody, I recently spoke on a webinar about ending war with a group of people who were by no means interested in ending war, and so they had lots of questions, and China was brought up as much as any other topic uh, as a reason not to end war, and it, and it was sometimes this blurring of economic competitor with deadly enemy. It was sometimes simply they're different and we must be horrified of people who are different, uh, often, you know, in terms 
of. They eat dogs. They eat the wrong animals. That's why we have the pandemic. Uh, but one point that uh, that I particularly wanted to ask you about was if I talked about Korea making peace and, and reunifying, uh, they immediately told me that China doesn't want Korea to be reunified. Uh, how do you reply to that? Um, well, first of all, where do they get their information? Because that's not what um, we hear. But I mean, like, how do we know? I mean, I don't hear that. But I'm not talking to, you know, it's just these rumors that we decide to engage in and then to make decisions around. And so I don't I don't either want to grab information out of space and make decisions around them. But China has not shown anything but a desire for peace and reunification um, in, in, for, with North Korea. As a matter of fact, they've been helping that to happen when we went and watched, walked across the DMZ, um, which is probably closer than these people you were talking to um, have been to the issue. Um, China is encouraging this to happen. Um, you know, the U.S., the United States of America, is the reason that North Korea and South Korea are not unified. And that is a crime against humanity. I mean, anyone in the United States that wants to think about what it would be like if your child, your mother, your sister, your brother, your aunt, that you were not allowed to see them for 75 years and now they're dead because of the United States of America. And then someone who's American has the hubris to talk about China not wanting it. I mean, it's just that is the distortion that we were in, inside of. And I mean, I watched the finger pointing towards China. And it's constantly, I want, it's like one finger pointing and five finger, four p- fingers pointing back. The things that they say are wrong with China are, in, you know, in wrong with the United States. So if, you know, if we get caught up in these human rights stories, it's like, yes, human rights under war are disappear. So why would you want to use human rights to drive a war? Like, it's not going to help anyone that you pretend to be concerned about, which, you know, they're not actually concerned about. They're just using it as propaganda to drive war. And so the, the level of I mean, literal stupidity that uh, is being used as the narrative to drive this war is kind of frightening. Um, And as you said, it's, I mean, I'm sorry the audience you were speaking to because, I mean, that's just, that's racism. Um, And it's imperialism. And um, both of those, we live in a time where the cost, human you know, economic and planetary are exposed to us, and we should be making different decisions. We should see that the decisions we've been making have failed. You know, not only the people of the United States, but the world. Indeed, and and as you point out, the 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 drive for you know a war in the name of human rights is generating racist violence uh, against people of Asian descent within the United States, isn't it? Yeah, it's all kind of so stupid. It's nobody has a clue the consequences of what they're doing. I mean, so it that kind of goes back to like 
<clears throat> watching people in China and, and understanding consequences. There's clear understanding of consequences there. But they live very close to, you know, it's only it's 70 some odd years ago where they were at war and it's there and people suffered and they, you know, lots crazy amounts of people have died in China from the attacks that they have and what war is. And there's a way in which people in the United States don't have a really good grasp of um, costs and consequences. Um, kind of almost like, um, you know, a child that hasn't grown up. But, um, you know, here we have the cheerleader, the literal cheerleader for or um, Biden had me arrested the day he said to um, uh, to send a, a Senate uh, committee on um, foreign relations that to bomb Iraq would lead to peace. Um, he's now the president of the United States, so th- this has cost us a, a stable Middle East. It has cost the de- you know really the destruction of three countries probably four, and um, and it's cost $5 trillion. The consequence experienced for that was becoming president of the United States. Yeah. And I think in the United States, there are so many ways that the consequences, there's so much failing up. We see it in people who are elected. We see it um, in people who run uh, companies. We see it in, you know... I would say our last two presidents, and I'm not going to go back any further, but, um, you know, Trump fails up, Biden failed up. Um, how are these examples of how we become intelligent citizens uh, creating peace and justice globally? When I talk about uh, undoing U.S. militarism and scaling back U.S. military spending, uh, the first thing I hear, again, is China, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Jody Evans spends maybe a third what the U.S. does on its militarism. And how hard would it be to start a reverse arms race if the United States were to scale back its military spending rather than constantly increasing it? What are the chances that China would do the same? Oh, China doesn't want to be spending any money on weapons and war. And, you know, driving this is going to force them. You know, that's one of the things that happens when you start driving aggression is that you force the person that you're making your enemy to defend themselves, which is one of the clear things we don't want to have happen, is more investment in nuclear weapons, and we would be forcing, the U.S. would be forcing China to do that. But, David, it's a great idea, a reverse arms race, and one of the things people in the U.S. should know is that, yeah, China, it's less than a third of um, our budget, but the other thing is they invest in science. They invest in technology. They invest in the education of their people. I mean, it's shameful if we look at the education system in the United States and who's denied it and how bad it has become. And uh, China, you know, definitely invests in their people. I mean, even to reverse the arms race and take people out of the streets and give them homes. Or, you know, forgive all the school debt that burden people's, young people's lives. Um, There's so much that could be done that would create 
so much more safety and security than increased investment in weapons and war. But by the way, just make the rich richer. Um, you know, these, I, I don't think people understand, I mean, first of all, that there is a war for profit is already a sin, um, and that that continues. Um, another film that I produced is The Shadow World, um, which is about weapons trade, and the weapons trader basically says, why don't they just, you know, give the money back and forth instead of all these weapons that are destroying the world and people. Um, the, the weapons trade is, is an addiction. It's insane. It's, it's on steroids, and nobody's watching. I mean, and it's just making the rich richer. This is a, this is a, this is a cash cow. And it's literally making a killing on killing. We, we've got about three minutes left. Jody, what can we do? We've got a, a U.S. Congress that this past year refused to move even 10% uh, of military spending, even to deal with a deadly disease pandemic in the middle of that pandemic. Uh, what can we do uh, with a presidential administration, as you say, coming in that is by no means inclined to be on our side on this. Uh, how can we? How can we start moving things in the right direction? Well, first of all, we all need to take it into our own hands and and know that this is a cultural war right now, and that's you know all these stories that's happening in culture, and we've got to take it back. First, we need to be grounded in our own understanding of how wrong this is on so many levels, starting with the racism that's driving in the U.S. Second, we need to become the you know, the we need to become those that are telling the different story. We need to change the narrative, own that narrative, and be able to, like, you know, when you see something in the newspaper, when you see your member of Congress, you need to be writing them and saying, no, this is not okay. You're driving racism. You're driving war. You know, you cannot be doing this. We need to make it personal and all of us be engaged. And at Code Pink, codepink.org, backslash China, we have all kinds of tools and talking points. I do a webinar once a week on all the different issues to make you smarter and more grounded in the truth. But we as peace activists need to be grounded in the truth, and then we need to be telling it. Because until we can kind of wash back this propaganda and say, no, that's propaganda and it's leading to war, we won't be able to move Congress to do the right thing. And that is a lesson that I learned out of the Iraq war that I don't want to make the mistake again. We need to be on the offensive for peace. And that offensive is not allowing these lies and to expose what they are doing and could do. We've got about one minute left. We've had a little success already. What are the chances we'll be able to stop some of these nominees for high office that openly, shamelessly profit from war, people like Blinken and Tandon and uh, Haynes, etc.? Well, we, we had two successes, so um, with Fornoy and um, um, Morel. So, Morel, sorry. And, um, you know, what, what it takes is some engagement, and I think the success out of those two was to expose who they really were. And, you know, it didn't take that much, um, because once we can expose what's really happening, the other side backs down. And um, we have, you know torturers, you know, advocates of murderous drones, we need to raise that up. That's not okay. No, they can't be appointed. And if we are going to stop, 
people getting away with murder, uh, that means we've got to expose those murderers, and we've got to expose that behavior and not accept it. And um, so far, it's working. Sounds like a great plan for 2021. We've been speaking with Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink. We'll have information and links about her up at talknationradio.org. Jody, thanks very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David, and for all you do for peace and justice. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.